I'm Danielle Charette here with Ryan Hanley, professor of political science at Boston College, uh, to discuss two complementary books uh, just out with Oxford University Press. Uh, the first is Fenelon, Moral and Political Writings, uh, in which Professor Hanley has translated a selection of Fenelon's major works. Uh, and the second book is his Political Philosophy of Fenelon. Uh, so to start, Professor Hanley, who was Fenelon and why did you uh, decide to translate him? I suppose in some ways the answer uh, to the first question, it explains the answer to the second question, which is um, uh, Fenelon is this remarkably interesting, important, and I dare say influential figure. And the very fact that he is so little known, even among specialist scholars in the Anglophone world, was really what led me to do the translation and to write the monograph, um, kind of to get the word out there uh, in, uh, again, the Anglophone world. Things are very different in the Francophone world. Fenelon is still revered as one of the greats, um, but, uh, but I thought we needed to help the cause here. But so to the question specifically, who was he? So Fenelon is... Um, so Archbishop Fenelon, uh, second half of the 17th century, was one of the most remarkable intellectuals of the period. Uh, first and foremost, um, given my interest, I'll mention that he was a remarkably important political thinker. So as tutor to the um, uh, Duke of Burgundy, the grandson of Louis XIV, he was in the court at Versailles, uh, Fenelon was, and he wrote for the Duke of Burgundy this remarkable work, Telemachus, uh, that is the work that, to which he really owes his fame. And Telemachus was uh, the book that went on to become an 18th century bestseller, uh, literally the best-selling book in all of 18th century France after the Bible, uh, but it was written for this audience of one, the Duke, uh, and to train him, to educate him in the virtues to be uh, more or less an anti-Louis XIV. Uh, and um, so first and foremost, Fenelon's significant as a political thinker for his contributions in Telemachus, but it goes so much further beyond that. He was a major player in the literary quarrel of the ancients and the moderns from his chair in the Académie Française. Uh, he was um, involved uh, rather heatedly in the living, the biggest um, theological dispute of his day, the quarrel over pure love. And he wrote incredibly influential books that would have a lot of resonance for later theorists, especially of education and the education of girls, uh, for political economists all throughout the 18th century in the luxury debate. So he's really this fascinating polymath that um, has struck me and struck many others over the ages as uh, really deserving an audience. Great. Um, so you mentioned that Fenelon was a polymath and he had a foot in all these different disciplines, whether theology or moral philosophy or political economy. Um, and the way, as I, as I read it, the way that you organized your monograph is that it's, it's organized thematically. So you, could you tell us a little bit about its structure and how it reflects Fenelon's different interests? Sure. Um, so the book is roughly, not roughly, the book is literally divided into two parts and seven chapters. And every one of the chapters is a virtue. And <laughs> uh, we get four familiar virtues for the first part and three familiar virtues for the second part. So the first part of the book is organized around his political thought proper. And so I have uh, a section on his political economy, which comes under the heading of the virtue of prudence, a uh, chapter uh, on um, uh, 
uh, Courage, uh, which uh, looks at his theory of war, uh, a chapter on justice and statesmanship. And all of this comes in the opening uh, sections of the Cardinal Virtues. Um, but I also wanted to try and do justice to Fenelon's other side, as it were. He really is multifaceted. But um, I, I think we do have a disservice if we don't try to see him as the world knew him, which was as a Catholic thinker and specifically a real genius when it came to questions of spirituality. So the second part of the book turns to the theological virtues and looks at uh, his thoughts on faith, hope and love, but very much from the perspective of not as theology proper. I am not myself a theologian. Um, but from the perspective of how these intersect with his core political doctrines, and especially the teaching that he wanted to provide to um, uh, the potential heir to the French throne. Um, so you mentioned uh, that Fanon was caught up in this quarrel over pure love. And some scholars, as I take it, have tried to unify his Fanon's overall project around pure love. But but you see a, a unity across the work, but maybe not pure love is the guiding theme. Can you say maybe a little bit more about what the what the overarching theme of Fanon's work might be? Sure. And it's probably right to start with the theme of pure love, because um, even though I wrote a book called The Political Philosophy of Fenelon, it really is his contributions to the pure love debate that I think fundamentally put Fenelon on the map. And so the pure love debate, it sounds like sort of an arcane offshoot of uh, Jansenist Jesuit quarrels in the late 17th century, but it really strikes at the heart of an idea that would become so important for later 18th century thinkers uh, and is such an obvious and living debate for political theorists. And that's really the question, not of pure love per se, but what pure love was seen as an antidote to, which was fundamentally self-love. And so the debate over amoprop the idea that many of us in the 18th century know so well through, uh, through um, uh, Rousseau moving into Tocqueville, this, of course, has its foundational moments in the late 17th century in France in those who were particularly concerned about the fallenness of human beings and the degree to which we were driven by this selfish pride and vanity. These are deeply Augustinian concepts, and Fenelon and many others were drawn into a debate in responding uh, and taking up themes from Augustine, among others. But the theological debate then became, um, is it possible to have as an antidote to amor propre or self-love, a truly pure or what many call disinterested love? Is it possible for human beings, and is it proper for human beings, to aspire to an entirely disinterested love that is completely free and pure of any taint of vicious self-love. And so Fenelon argued uh, in the affirmative, as it were, and he argued that it was possible for human beings and proper for human beings to desire uh, uh, to achieve a state of pure love purged from any sense of self-love. Why that became problematic, and Fenelon tried to justify his position with reference to, uh, he was a very erudite man, uh, the history of the church fathers and modern saints. The reason why that became problematic is that his mentor, Bossuet, who took the opposite side in this debate and is probably most famous in political circles for having defended the idea of, um, uh, of divine right within France, that Bossuet um, uh, and many others in the church took offense at the idea that we shouldn't have a self-interested desire for our own salvation. And that self-interest, 
to some degree was proper even for right-thinking Catholics. It's a much more complete, you know, I won't go into the weeds, but this is the basic contours of the debate. And um, Fenelon had to suffer the censure of the church and Pope Innocent XII condemned several of his propositions um, saying that this was not within, uh, within, uh, within the grounds of theology. Um, the issue then becomes with these writings, they're so deeply moving on pure love is that his politics has often been read through the lens of pure love. And so um, I mentioned that pure love and disinterestedness go together. Well, when you read Fenelon's politics next to his theology, you see again and again familiar themes of civic virtue, self-sacrifice, restraint of the ruler's self-love, becoming a ruler for the people, not trying to exploit the people. And so there's legitimate reasons for seeing definite parallels between these ideas. What I want to argue, and what I try to add to the conversation in my monograph, is that um, that Fenelon um, revered pure love so much in the spiritual realm that I think he was deeply sensitive to the idea that you couldn't make real politics pure in that sense. Politics runs on a very different set of passions of which Fenelon was quite a student, not least of which was the love of glory. Anybody that knows 18th century or 17th century France and uh, Louis XIV knows that this love of glory is what drove the ruler. Fenelon is not trying to disabuse his uh, protege here uh, in, uh, and to try and convince him that the love of glory is entirely bad and that he should become a pure loving king. Fenelon thinks that this is simply beyond the pale for fallen individuals in the political world. So what I think he's trying to do is to do something that is in fact deeply Augustinian. Not to try and make the city of man, as it were, the city of God, not trying to purify the political world entirely. That, I think Fenelon would be the first to say, is naive. Instead, the image of pure love, the image of the disinterested ruler, provides us with something like a pole star. We can't perhaps disabuse the ruler of his self-love entirely, but we can elevate it, we can educate it, and we can, in Fenelon's words, make him seek what he calls, Fenelon does, true glory. And it's trying to inspire the love of true glory, which is not disinterested, it's not pure love, but it's also well elevated beyond the sort of base narcissism, egocentrism that Fenelon saw on display, and so many others, of course, have at Versailles. And this, so this, this notion of uh, true glory versus false glory, glory and uh, true love versus a self-love, is it, does that organize Fenelon's thought? He seems to have these, he likes these true-false contrasts. He does, yes. They're really at the heart of his project. And I, I make this very explicit in the epilogue to the book at the end, summing up some of these ideas, that um, he really works with this true-false distinction. And it comes up again and again. But as you mentioned, it comes up um, most famously with regard to the concept of love. Uh, it also comes up, as I've mentioned, with regard to glory. But he also uses it in uh, at least two other realms that I focus on in the book. One is courage. And so he's very concerned to, dis to distinguish between true courage and false courage. And of course, Louis XIV, who liked to portray himself as a warrior king, as an adventurer, as somebody who was on the front line, and somebody who was uh, um, a man of the military, 
Fenelon wanted to make very clear during the course of the War of Spanish Succession uh, the um, uh, challenges that come from mistaking true courage, in which one defends the homeland, from false courage, the opportunities to exploit, to take advantage of innocent others, the zeal of the conqueror. So Fenelon thought that uh, we needed to um, uh, get the record straight with regard to Louis XIV as well as many other people's courage. And also the question of pleasure. Um, Fenelon throughout Telemachus, this wonderful book, there's a way to read it as if he's just preaching the virtues of austerity, but I think that really does a disservice to the book because he's constantly, or the tutor in the book, is constantly trying to steer Telemachus, the young would-be king, away from false pleasures to true pleasures. That is, he's not meant to be a monk, this king, or would-be king. Uh, he's not meant, for example, to um, uh, live the celibate life. But there's a difference between the right woman and the wrong woman, very much for Telemachus. And there's a steering of Telemachus away from the false pleasures represented by the figure of Calypso in this book to uh, the true pleasures of his proper love uh, and his marriage with uh, the figure of Antio. Uh, and anybody that's read, of course, um, Rousseau's Emile, in which Telemachus plays such a prominent role, will recognize this in the story of the, the, what one could easily call the true pleasures of the good love of Sophie and uh, Emile himself. Can you say a little bit about how Fenelon fits uh, with some of your earlier work? Yeah, I'm happy to say a few words. I mean, in some ways, it's it's a real pivot, and I get this a lot from friends. Most of my early work was on Adam Smith and the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, uh, and um, on the face of things, the turn from late 18th century Scotland to uh, 17th century France seems like a big shift. Um, you know, this snuck up on me in many ways, because it turns out I don't think the shift is actually all that great for a variety of reasons. One is the eminent fascination that the Scottish Enlightenment had with the age of Louis XIV and with the monarchical court. I think this is actually, for 18th century Scottish scholars who may not wish to come, you know, turn directly to Fenelon, my hope is to actually encourage a little bit of more work in this field because it seems to me wonderfully underdone and simply on the surface of things. A book I've spent a lot of time with is Smith's theory of, Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. And Smith's references to 17th century French writers, just on the surface, his few explicit references, are really remarkable. And so I hope to really encourage people to read Massillon, who gets by far the longest quotations in the uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he's a French preacher, which very few Scottish Enlightenment specialists would ever uh, uh, care to, uh, uh, or have cared to look at so far. I hope that changes. So on some level, that there is, a, I think, a natural connection to try and understand the world that Smith himself is responding to, but there's also themes that carry forward. And um, since we're doing this interview for the, um, the uh, archives at uh, uh, St. Andrews, I should mention that um, one of the first people, well, I'll credit two scholars, really great scholars from a previous generation, um, Patrick Riley, who was at the University of Wisconsin for many years, and Ishvan Hunt uh, of Cambridge, did a great deal to um, pave the way uh, to put um, Fenelon on the map again for historians of political thought in the Anglo-American world. Riley did so with his remarkable um, reissuing uh, and revision of Tobias Smollett's 18th century translation of Telemachus, which was published in the Cambridge Blue Book series and which is truly excellent and which I hope to complement through this um, translation that I've made of different texts. 
Uh, and Patrick also, of course, addressed this in other of his monographs as well. Um, but um, uh, Ishvan Hunt uh, really um, brought Fenelon back by, in his important piece on the early 18th century luxury debate in the Cambridge History of 18th Century Political Thought, by putting Fenelon really at the headwaters of a debate that many people for a long time had credited Mandeville with the beginning, and by very compellingly showing that this luxury debate, which of course pays real dividends when we come to um, Smith and Hume and others in the later Scottish Enlightenment, that it has to begin with Fenelon and Fenelon's critiques of a certain side of luxury. So in many ways, it was um, Ishvan Hunt's work that got me thinking about the connections on the level of political economy. What Ishvan uh, doesn't um, deal with quite as much, given his own interests, um, is the way in which his uh, Fenelon's um, spirituality uh, theology, religious duties, and commitments also help shape his thought. And so that's another thing that I hope to add. But I think that um, uh, in many ways, Ishvan Hunt's remarkable essay is what made it possible to begin to think backwards in that way and to go back from the later 18th century to this fascinating world that includes not just Fenelon, but many others in late 17th century France who deserve our attention. Hmm. So I know you've done a little bit of editorial work in the past, especially um, with Smith and the Wealth of Nations. Can you can you speak to the experience of translating Fenelon at the same time that you were writing a scholarly monograph? Uh, did the two projects kind of fuse? Would you recommend translation to people who are trying to get inside a thinker's head? Oh, um, Boy, I have, um, yes, to your last question, absolutely. There's no doubt that the discipline that comes from translating enables you to understand and to appreciate what's going on in a complex author at a much higher level. For me, what was especially interesting is, you know, Fenelon's complete works are 10 volumes in the Quarto edition, 18 volumes of correspondence, and then a huge amount of unpublished material in the archives. As a result, he's a thinker that you have to sort of read across the texts. And the act of translating forces you to see certain linguistic and thought patterns and to help you be able to recognize those in other places. So I have no doubt that the monograph is a much better work for the amount of effort and discipline that went into the translation. That said... <laughs> I was once cautioned by one of the great scholars, I'm not going to out him, by one of the great scholars of the Scottish Enlightenment, that um, editing another thinker's words is the proper work of either a very young scholar or a very old scholar. <laughs> and as someone who I think I could legitimately say falls somewhere in between those two, I, I understand what that meant. It took an enormous amount of time mm -hmm. doing translation and doing editorial work right is a true, I won't, I won't say thankless task because I hope people will take this up and read it, but the amount of work that goes into uh, doing it right, I have a newfound respect for those who really are professional translators um, and also doing the contextual work to understand the terminology. 17th century French tax policy is ridiculously complex. And uh, as someone who's a neophyte in this particular world and trying to navigate it, at the same time navigating the complexities of late 17th century French theology and Fenelon's simply capacious mind, uh, I mean, it's a humbling experience. There's no two ways about that. But I do stand by the idea that he's a thinker that really genuinely deserves to be read and engaged 
across a variety of different disciplines. So I was happy to take one for the team and prepare this. I'm a better man for it. I certainly hope Fenelon's legacy won't be hurt by it. It might be helped a little bit by it. But boy, if I knew then what I knew now, <laughs> a lot of hours went to that labor of love. <laughs> So and now and now it's accessible to more historians of political thought, though. Um, and but besides, and may, perhaps the the biggest reason that uh, Anglophone historians of political thought don't know about Fenelon is that we had so little was translated. But do you think there are there are other reasons that he's um, slipped out of uh, kind of the mainstream canon? And uh, what are good reasons for bringing him back in? Yeah, you know, I I say in the epilogue to my book that, you know, I, I this book isn't about the reasons for Fenelon's neglect. A lot mm -hmm. of people have noted this, and it really is shocking and surprising. Um, and I think one would be hard-pressed to find a thinker who enjoyed such prominent renown in his day and for many years after, and who has simply fallen off the face of the scholarly um, uh, of attention. Um, but there's just few, I think, where the gap between original reputation and present reputation are bigger than in Fenelon's case. Why is that the case? You know, I think there's a number of reasons that can be posited. Um, one is it's undoubtedly the case that the good archbishop, his political vision was shaped by faith commitments and a certain understanding. I think a very nuanced understanding of the relationship of church and state. Um, but you know, I think for that reason it's difficult to simply fit him into the liberal canon. Um, another is this book Telemachus is so remarkable on so many levels and was widely revered as a genius work of prose among other things. But to say the least, um, its style is not one that captivates today. I've taught it now over several years to undergraduates. And I can say that for some it really resonates and for some it simply doesn't. And it seems sort of antiquarian. Um, but I also think, you know, the time is right in many ways. Um, I close the book with a very small anecdote, which is um, Fillon was famous for the Enlightenment thinkers, not just as a humanitarian, but as an enemy of illiberal forms of power. And Louis XIV represented in many ways that Montesquieu would take up questions of despotism. He really represented, um, if not tyranny, a sort of absolutism that was threatening to the general health and well-being of a nation. And that message continued to resonate, and somewhat to my surprise, it resonated even throughout the 20th century. Um, when uh, a number of exiled literary scholars from Paris fled to Switzerland and put together a um, book series, uh, The Cri de France, this idea of the literary resistance, um, the first text that they uh, published was a collection of Fenelon's political writings. It spoke to the moment in ways that, in fact, the Vichy authorities saw clearly and banned from entering France. And so um, I don't want to say that we're simply at the, <laughs> I don't want to overplay certain parallels, but we're at a moment where I think almost everyone recognizes that in addition to many other challenges in our current political moment, rises of various forms of um, illiberal uh, authority uh, has become a really pressing issue in our global political moment. And I think that alone is enough to um, give Fenelon a hearing. Anyone, I think, who is interested in um, what it looks like to speak truth to power and what issues of practical resistance 
from an academic or philosophical standpoint to actual practical politics, what that might look like. I can only recommend, uh, as a place to start, Fenelon's remarkable seven-page letter to Louis XIV, which is a document that is simply lightning hot and eclipses, in terms of its rhetoric and its force, almost any other political writing that I know from the 20th century on similar themes. Um, I know that that's high praise. I think the text can stand up to and bear that scrutiny. But uh, I think for that reason alone, he speaks to our moment um, in ways that I think are important, even for us as intellectual historians, um, to appreciate. 